Welcome to episode three of In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. Woo, time flies when you're having fun. Well, this week I'm branching out a little bit. I'll still be covering the OBS winter mix sale, which is what's coming up this week. But I'll also be talking about horses way before they hit the racetrack or the sales ring and also about what they do after their time on the racetrack is done. So we're going into the breeding realm a little bit today, and we'll learn about the start of life, really, for the recent Pegasus World Cup winner, Nix Go, who's a Maryland bred, by the way, which I love. And I'll also be talking about a topic which is really near and dear to my heart, and that's thoroughbred aftercare. I hope throughout this podcast that we can continue to have some really candid conversations about aftercare on here and how important it is to the sport of horse racing at its core. So while this is a podcast dedicated to sales, pedigree, breeding, it all comes together. It all ties together. And I could do a whole separate podcast just on aftercare. But for now, I hope you enjoy today's guests who really cover all parts of a horse's life. Today, who is the amazing Bruna Moore, who's been making the media rounds quite a bit lately as the breeder of Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile winner and now Pegasus World Cup winner, Nick's Go. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining me today. I know it's been a crazy week for you, but so happy to have you on. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate you, you know, having me on here. Now, it's been a wild journey for you with Nick Sko, particularly his last four races that have just been incredible. I got to meet you at the Pegasus this past week. What was that weekend like, just watching him pull away from the rest of the field? It was, I say it every time, completely surreal. Um, you know, I, I never realized how tense it is until a couple hours after. Like, it happened at the Breeders' Cup, and it happened this time, too. Like, after it all happened, I was just, like, so beat. Like, I couldn't do anything else. I was like, I, I need to go to sleep. <laughs> so, you know, like, the entire week leading up to it, like, I couldn't sleep. Like, my stomach hurts. Like, I mean, it was, so it was it was a lot of fun. I think I had a lot of friends there to distract me. Um, but it was just, it was super emotional. I mean, just to think that he could come back and do as well as he did. I mean, I never imagined that. So it's it's been fantastic. And we've gotten to see and learn a little bit about your story is you bred Nick's go in Maryland, which I love that he's a Maryland bred. And uh, I've gotten to do some work over the past few years with the Maryland Jockey Club at, at Pimlico and Laurel Park. And the Maryland bred program has, has grown so much. Tell me a little bit about what it means not only to have Nick's go be so sensational, but the fact that he's a Maryland bred as well. Yeah, well, unfortunately for me, Nick's go being a Maryland bred is isn't helping me so much right now but you know we have our uh we have great uh breeder incentives which you know what it's a plus if they run here um if not that's just the name of the game um but you know I just have really close ties to Maryland I was born and raised here um so you know the industry has given me a serious leg up I mean everyone has just been so kind I mean it's a really just small tight-knit community um and even as far as the fans go as well um and for you know it to put maryland kind of on a international stage has been really fun and i'm just really happy that nicks could do that for them and just kind of give everybody a ride so it's been great and you have your farm with your mom angie at greenmount farm in maryland tell me a little bit about the operation that you run and um what kind of a day-to-day -day is like for you 
So it's my farm's pretty small compared to um, others, I guess you could say. <laughs> when we actually started the farm, um, I used to barrel race. I had two quarter horses um, and we had one little five acre field fenced in and the rest of it was just land. Um, and I never imagined to grow it the way it has gone. Uh, you know, my mom, she's I, it's funny. I say I'm the more realistic one. She's a little bit of the dreamer. She kind of started to get. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. She started to get involved with some partnerships. They failed miserably, um, but we had a whole lot of fun doing it. Uh, so, you know, eventually one thing led to another and she, we picked up a free brood mare, you know, she had a foal. It needed to go somewhere to get trained. So, you know, we were completely, absolutely 100% clueless at one point in time. Um, I just really fell in love with the process. I thought it was so fun. Um, and I think, you know, me not knowing anything, uh, you know, just kind of gave me like a fresh plate to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know anybody. I, I, I really didn't have, um, I wasn't nervous about anything, which I think, you know, I think it's when you're younger like that, you just kind of go for it. Um, and thank God that helped me because now thinking back of it, I'm like, where did I get the guts to do start any of this? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, you know, so as it stands right now, um, you know, I have my little consignment. I sell up here at the mid-Atlantic sale. Um, I sales prep. I fold um, mares out, I breed them back, um, you know, I do layups, we broke a baby this year, I really try not to do that, but that's so much fun too. Um, mm -hmm. I really just try to help, you know, I got a very small handful of clients and I just try to make it as easy for them as possible, so that's what we do up here. And obviously the, the ultimate reward is seeing a horse be successful on the track. I mean, how fulfilling is that given all the behind the scenes work that you do at the farm? It's not an easy job in breeding horses and getting them ready. No, it's not. And, you know, it's a lot of really long nights and it feels uh, like a lot of times, you know, your hard work's not appreciated. So it, for, you know, people to really recognize that has been, you know, just so incredibly nice. Um, and like I said, I mean, I never expected to get a horse like Nick's go. I mean, I breed on a budget. I mean, of course you're trying to get the best horse you possibly can, you know, with the amount of money you can, but I never mm -hmm. thought I'd be breeding a grade one winner or three time grade one winner at this point, um, ever. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that's just been, like I said, a dream. Um, you know, I try to aim to make nice horses that, you know, your average joke and, you know, pay the rent with and, right. you know, they, so it, it, it's just been unbelievable, but I've been really happy with our little su successes so far. So, <laughs> and you're young too. I mean, I think when you kind of, um, you know, being a fellow young woman in the racing industry, I think that you are kind of breaking stereotypes in what you see too, because I think people don't ordinarily think of someone like you as, oh, wow, she's the girl that bred a three-time grade one winner in a horse like this. And that's got to be kind of cool too. Yeah, it's really, you know, interesting. You know, I like to think that our industry, you know, is pretty open to, all, you know, races, genders, ages. And, uh, you know, aside from my age, that's, that's been the biggest thing that's told me back. Like, you know, I've had people and rightfully so, I mean, when you want to pick somebody to send a mare to, you would pick somebody that has 40 years of experience over 10. So I completely understand that. Um, but like I said, the industry has been, you know, very forward and open and super kind to me. And I think they realize that, you know, um, it's been, I know on the, I'm on the, uh, board of the Maryland Horse Breeders Association. And that's one of our things that is constantly coming up is that, you know, we need to replenish, uh, you know, 
our fans and even, you know, our, everybody in the industry, you know, it's, and it's tough, you know, I think when you're younger, I mean, a lot of the people that I feel like that will eventually invest in the industry, they're in law school right now and they're Mm -hmm. making millions of bucks so they can help people like me out (laughs) in a couple (laughs) years and send me horses. So, so I think it will come, you know, um, but yeah, it's, so it's been, everyone's been really helpful and like, same thing at the sales. I mean, I only sold with Phasic Tipton, but I mean, they've been just so nice, so helpful. I mean, if you're younger and you're thinking about getting into it, I mean, I just think, you know, go for it. People are willing to help people like us. So um, it's just been really encouraging. I love hearing that too, because I think sometimes horse racing can be so intimidating. And this is a little aside from what I had planned on asking. Oh yeah, sorry. It's I'm really no, no, you're fine. conversation. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I think it's, it, it really can be so intimidating. But, you know, for me, when I first got in, as I had no relation to horse racing either, I met a couple people that were willing to help me and answer my questions and kind of help break it down for me a little bit. And then I was like, okay, I can do this. It's not that bad. You know, it's not these yeah. kind of giant walls that you have to break down. So I love that it has been such a positive reception. And the, the work that you're doing is incredible. Like I said, I think the breeders really should always get a lot of credit for for starting the horse's life. Like I said, it's not an easy job kicking things off. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about um, the start of life, I should say, for Nick's go. You sold him as a weanling, and I saw a um, little clip, I think it was on your Twitter, of him a little spirited even back then, too. Huh? Oh, my gosh. He was so tough. He was so tough. And actually, like, when he was a full, he was perfect. He was so sweet. He was so lovable. Um, and then he, <laughs> he came back from Kentucky, which they still did a fantastic job with him. He was down at Laura McKinney's at Stone Point Farm or Stony Point. Um, and I mean, they handled the hell out of him. And I mean, he just came back and he was a brute. Like, I mean, he was just strong. He was obnoxious. I mean, which is just like his personality, um, completely like you could do anything with him, but like he had his own opinions about it for sure. Um, so, I mean, that was really fun. Um, you know, he, I, I like, like I say he was naughty, but he really was so easy. I mean, he, but he had just this like spirit at him, like you said. Um, and when he didn't want to do something, he put up a hell of a fight for it. So, um, you know, when we were down at Keeneland selling him, um, I had a horse selling a couple days before that. So I had to drop him off at a farm. I came back, picked him up, <clears throat> to take him to the sale and the I, it's a really good sale friend of mine was actually working for him and I mean we couldn't hold him back he would just run through you he just wanted to go where he did and it was like I'm like come on Nick like well that wasn't his name at the time but I was like I know I prepped this horse so much better than this. <laughs> <laughs> like this is so embarrassing like I mean here he would you know stand on a dime but you know he just when he has his opinions, he has his opinions. That's for sure. They have a way of making a liar out of you, don't they? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. And actually when we were at Pegasus, um, I met the Demerics who had him, which is honestly, I, I actually called mid Atlantic because I told them, I was like, look between June and the Demerics, I was like, there's a huge timeline that even I didn't know that I missed about his whole life. And, <laughs> you know, they said when they broke him as a two year old, they said he was a hell of a ride. And there was one particular ride in the road. And they said he would always stand up on t- two legs all the Ooh. time. 
and they but the um the writers kind of like giggled at him and would just like lean over his neck and like laugh about it and just like get him through it and then he just finally one day was like well this doesn't work anymore <laughs> just stop so he's just I don't know I mean he's been very but like just little things like that I mean you could have had a really aggressive mean rider on him that you know mm-hmm. freaked out every time he did it and that right there could have ruined that horse and that was that so I mean he's been very lucky to have the people involved in his mm-hmm. life that he has so yeah, sometimes horses I think are just like oversized toddlers that are just trying to get a rise out of you and if yeah. they don't then it's not right. worth it well and sometimes mentally and physically they don't line up you're like wait mm-hmm. I know you're three but why are you acting like you're you know one <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing about his personality too that's really cool is you know they their personalities really come out at different stages of their life too and just seeing how he's developed into this horse on the track I mean he looked like he was on Pegasus day and I'd seen him school the week before just I kind of described him as like a prize fighter like that bubbling energy I mean he was he he knew he was hot stuff there on the track did you see that as well and feel like a little kind of pinch of pride there yeah although like I thought he looked like he pretty like chilled and relaxed in the paddock and stuff but I mean like he when I watched him like like in the mornings when I went to uh the Breeders' Cup and I watched him that Thursday morning coming around the track I was like just praying I'm like please nobody follow up. Please don't let him run off. Please do like, because <laughs> like, he was giving me a heart attack. Like, I don't know how Brad watches him train in the morning or whoever the system is. I like, I would die. <laughs> He's so tough. But I mean, like, once again, just so lucky that, I mean, everybody that, you know, has fallen on top of this horse has just done such an incredible job because without them, I mean, he could easily be, you know, mm-hmm. taking a wrong path for sure. He certainly found the right path, especially recently. Um, and going back to the start, he's by Painter out of uh, AmeriCosmos Buddy. Tell me a little bit about how that breeding came about. So actually, um, I use Bill Reitler for all of my breeding recommendations. Um, you know, we kind of sit down and, you know, go over him after, you know, he's had free reign to look at everybody. Um, we love Windstar. Um you know, as a small breeder, this was before their breeding incentive thing. But now that that's happened, I'm like all gung ho. And I, I literally buy horses so I can make sure I breed my two to win star every year. But um, so he, you know, when we first started breeding and got Mr. Bill involved, you know, we decided that, OK, we need to take a commercial route. Um, you know, so we've been kind of I think this was technically we tried to breed to painter his first year it's done I think he was like 2025 or something at that point um the mayor had some complications so we had to skip it um Windstar was extremely nice um you know I think they even gave us like some compensation or something um you know I was like you know what we'll bre- I'll, bre- I'll go back next year which like typically I probably wouldn't have done what mm-hmm. did that I have no idea but you know so that's ultimately what uh made the next go um you know and at the time, we just thought he was going to be popular. You know, he's very fast. Um, he, you know, was pretty accomplished. Cosmo's buddy was fast. You know, she was turf sprinty, but, um, you know, we kind of thought if we threw a bigger, faster dirt horse in there, hopefully something would happen. But mm-hmm. honestly, um, the idea was hopefully to get something commercial on a budget. So <clears throat> that certainly worked out. And I understand you sold Cosmo's buddy um, while Nick's go had started racing as well. Yep. So that was actually like one of my, I like, I don't regret anything in life. And actually I was thinking about that. I was like, 
you know, do I regret it now? And, you know, I, I don't, at the time I was like so sick about it. Would I have loved to have her and still have her? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, and having such a small broodmare band, like those are my girls, you know, and Cosmo was actually one of my first, uh, broodmares. I just absolutely loved her. She was just, you know, that just actually, she was my very first maiden I fold out, my first commercial horse I fold out. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we just kind of went on this journey together. Yeah, because she was a terrible mom. Like, the, her first foal, I mean, you know, she was, she did not that she didn't want anything to do with it, but she was just did that, that natural instinct of like mommy mode didn't completely click on. Yeah. So she needed a lot of help. And to watch her go from that to like the absolute, my 100 best foley mare, I love her to death. You know, it, it was really cool. Uh, and like we had a really good bond too and I'm usually not that like corny with horses but like <laughs> like she loved me and I loved her like and we totally mm-hmm. trust each other and I like 100% believe that um so but yeah um so I sold her I sold her uh, at the time you know she d- wasn't in full once again I was having some complications with her you know Nick's go ran uh really nice and that main special weight and won his first time out and June had called me <clears throat> and um I think I gave him a number and then I, I think he docked me like 10,000. I said, uh-uh. I was like, I, <laughs> I was like, this has got to be the number. I'm sorry. I was like, that's it. And he said, came back. He said, okay, okay, okay. So, um, you know, I, like, I wish I, I try not to be very, you know, once I feel like I sold them, I feel like I sold them. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, I shouldn't call the owners, the breed or the trainers. Like that's not any of my, my business. You know, I really wish I would have called Ben Colebrook right before I signed that bill of sale, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, but you know, but I do like, you know, because I sold her, like I, June and I, like we have a very good relationship and, you mm-hmm. know, it's just been, you know, I think it's open, you know, opportunities for myself, but I still have a half sister to Nixco. So I'm excited about that. That is exciting too. How old is she? Pink print is, do, 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 do. I believe she's seven now. Okay. She might be 10. Yeah, seven. She's seven or eight, maybe nine. To be honest with you, I can't think. I think she's a 2013. Okay. I feel like. So she, she, she might be eight. time with her too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she's been like my most failed um, horse I've ever bred ever. So it's <laughs> been kind of cool to have her come full circle. Like I've had so many opportunities to sell her and someone has asked and I've turned it down every time and it has not worked for me every time I've turned her down. But uh, somebody asked me, told me this weekend, you better sell that horse. I said, no, I've learned my lesson. I'm keeping her. <laughs> there you go things do have a way of coming full circle in the world of horse racing too oh they sure do it doesn't like i mean it might not be tomorrow or the next day it might be 10 years down the road but it'll happen eventually <laughs> nick's go has really taken you guys on a, an incredible journey everybody i think that's had anything to do with him has and i think that's one of the beautiful things about horse racing what are some of the goals for you and for your mom your farm what are some things that you still hope to accomplish in the in the industry um I would really like to grow my consignment um you know I I really like you know breeding quality horses myself but um you know to get some some more clients for you know my consignment would be nice you know I like to keep everything small I'm more I try to be a you know quality over quantity type of person uh but you know eventually you know it'd be really cool if I could even you know manage something for someone or you know uh I would love to do something like that. Um, you know, the farm life is really hard, especially as a smaller breeder. Um, you know, I have, you know, about 40 horses here, but I mean, it's a hard life. Um, so I would either have to grow the farm or, you know, pick another direction. 
direction, I think, later down in life. But, you know, I think the consignment is definitely the way that I want to go or, you know, managing people's stables for them would be so much fun. Well, I look forward to seeing your name in the news more because I'm sure that that's going to happen. And so glad to get a chance to know you a little bit better and, and hear your story a bit more. Sabrina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and hope to see you soon, too. Sabrina's Sabrina's a good one. She made sure I had a drink right after the Pegasus, so my brain was <laughs> not so functioning. So. I think you worked harder than any racehorse that ran that day, so I'm going to put it that way. I was all over the place. That's why I was like, okay, this is a good one. <laughs> Thank you, Sabrina. No problem. So pleased to be joined by Wes Peterson, the marketing coordinator from OBS Sales, as we're getting ready for the OBS Winter Mix Sale coming up Tuesday, January 26th and Wednesday, January 27th. Wes, I know you're so busy this week. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with me. Well, thanks so much for having me, Acacia. I really appreciate it. Now, this sale, of course, we're, we're used to seeing OBS sales, the big, exciting two-year-old sales that we have in the spring uh, leading up to it. But the winter mix sale, you have a mix, as the name would suggest, horses of racing age sales, some brood mares, uh, some younger horses. What's What can we expect this coming week as far as what the sale contains? Well, as you know, since we don't have a breeding stock sale in the fall, this is our main um, mix sale that we offer. And it's a really some really exciting pedigrees from some local farms based in Florida. And the main showcase is going to be some of the short yearlings because we have, again, some really exciting first season sires and some Florida-based sires that uh, we kind of bring to the marketplace here. And it's, it's been really popular. We've got about 650 head catalog, which is a little bit bigger than we were expecting. So, Well, that's exciting, too. And you mentioned some of the, the horses based here in Florida and, of course, OBS in Ocala. How have you seen kind of those Florida-based farms, some of the Florida-bred horses in particular, uh, really kind of gearing towards this sale? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's really exciting. Um, you know, it's always a, a, a fun prospect when you have a nice horse retired a stud. And some of the local sires that we have that are first season sires this year from based in Florida are Gervin and Buchero. And from what I've seen so far, they're really good bodied horses and look athletic looking. And we're excited to get them on, on offer for the market and see how the people respond. It was kind of fun for me looking through the catalog because I recognized a lot of the names, seeing them race at Gulfstream over the years, yes, too, exactly. whether it was some of the new stallions or, or the horses of racing age. And um, seven stallions debuting at stud in Florida this year. And there's a lot of broodmares offered as well uh, for people that are maybe looking to support some of those stallions. Yeah, I mean, it's a great time of year to trade horses, especially as we transition into breeding season and a new racing season. And uh, it's it's a really good time for people to come and get a, an in-full mare to maybe a, an exciting young stallion or an established mare with some, some pedigree that wouldn't have been on offer at another sale. So it's a good time to trade. Now, tell me a little bit about what the sale uh, entails overall, as it will start with the preferred session mm -hmm. Tuesday morning. What's What are the kind of horses we're going to see in that? That's a really exciting prospect that we offer that's kind of a unique thing that we do here at OBS, is we let our consigners choose the horses they want to put in that preferred section. And in such a large sale, you know, when people want to come from out of town and they don't have a whole lot of time to look through the whole sale, they can kind of focus on that preferred section to say, okay, I want a short yearling by you know, XYZ sire or a mare with some pedigree, they can search through that uh, preferred section first instead of having to look through the entire catalog. Nice opportunity kind of 
take your time down a little bit of what you're spending as well. And the horses of racing age will be after that. And they will have uh, the breeze show on Monday. Of course, we're again, used to seeing the breeze show for two year olds, but how important is that? Do you think to have that opportunity for some of the horses of racing age? It's a great showcase. And we've got about 120 horses of racing age catalog, which is again, a little bit more robust than we were expecting. But again, it's fun to, you know, trade early in the racing season. If people are looking to, reload their stable a little bit and uh it's a great opportunity to like have have the breeze show for people to evaluate those horses based on their athleticism and their soundness in addition to their form and their physical here at the sale now, as you said it's kind of a an opportunity to trade horses and I, I loved that you were saying that it was a little bit bigger than expected as there will be um some online activity this year of course like every sale OBS had to get a little creative over the past year due to the COVID-19 pandemic how have you seen the pandemic influence the sales not only the calendar but maybe the involvement as well and and how do you think OBS has really adapted to that We've been very fortunate to work with a company based out of Tampa uh, named Xira, and they've bent over backwards to accommodate our needs because it's kind of a new industry for them as well. And they were able to create an online suite for us that was functional and easy to use, and they got it up and running just in the nick of time for us for our summer sales. And we've seen it grow because there are people that are interested in simply the online bidding, not necessarily thoroughbreds, but especially for this sale, I've had a lot of people sign up because they just want to see what it's all about and see how it works. And uh, just the curiosity gets them involved in the sales. So it's been an unexpectedly positive, like recruiting tool. Uh, it's been really good for us. Kind of a silver lining. So yeah, to speak. Exactly. yeah. Tell me a little bit about for those that are going to the sales, what some of the protocols are that, that you have in place? Yeah. So we decided, you know, Florida has been kind of much more open than the rest of the country, but we decided it was time to, put a few more restrictions in place in terms of we're not allowing public here at the sale. Uh, masks are going to be mandated inside and outside as well, just to make sure that everyone's safe and healthy. And, you know, we're not allowing any public on the grounds. There's no, there's only takeaway food service, which uh, we were able to implement that uh, in the summertime, but we're really, really glad to have everyone safe and healthy and want to keep that, that trend going for sure. And make it possible for everybody to have the best experience and and get what they need with the sales, which the sales really are such an important part of the racing industry in general. Tell me a little bit about your involvement um, with the the OBS company and with the sales in general, and how you think it really impacts the overall racing scene. Yeah, I mean, as you know, we kind of specialize in the two year old sales, and we're fortunate to have a geographical advantage that all the consigners and the pin hookers that are based in Florida are right here in the Ocala area. So they trust us to, you know, bring their horses to market and market those horses to buyers that are going to be successful and use our state of the art track to showcase those horses and make sure, you know, they're safe and healthy and fast. So it's fun to be involved in that. I do a lot of the marketing promotion here for OBS as well as uh, managing the online bidding and some uh, recruiting and inspections as well. So it's kind of a, a, a very full schedule for us, but we're excited to get the 2021 sales season back up and running. And after this winter mix sale is over, it really is full steam ahead onto some of those two-year-old two-year-old sales, like you mentioned, in a very full spring and early summer season as far as those do go. What is some of that, that process like in, in kind of recruiting horses or um, even marketing them as you'll see some new stallions uh, on display for their first two-year-old crops, some, some big name mares involved as well. Tell me a little bit about that process as we get into that season. Yeah, so as you know, it's very competitive. Uh, 
you know, there's a lot of really, really nice horses out there that we obviously want to have them come through our sales ring and claim them as graduates because it's, you know, it's very exciting when you have a horse like Colonel Liam win the Pegasus World Cup turf. But we put a lot of time and effort into building a catalog uh, because our consigners and our buyers really trust us with placement and they take it, our advice into account when we want to get their horse in the best sale possible. So we've been spending a lot of time looking at horses for the March sale and that catalog is going to be coming out really soon. And we're already actually on to building the, the April sale as well, because it's such a large, important part of the sales industry. And people come from all over the world to, to shop with us. And like I said, we want to make sure we offer the best product for our buyers that come from all over the world and uh, make sure that the horses are in the right place so the consigners can get the best value for those horses. You mentioned Colonel Liam, 2019 OBS April two-year-old sales grad, of course, sold for $1.2 million. I'm sure there was some buzz about him then on your end. And uh, on my show last week, I spoke to Jacob West, who signed the ticket for him for Mr. and Mrs. Lowe. And I know that there had been buzz kind of on the, the end of the Bloodstock agents taking a look at a horse like that. But what is it like for OBS or for a sales company when you get to follow a horse that sold for a lot? or even didn't and has gone on to be really successful on the racetrack. Well, it's so exciting. And as you know, it's very, very competitive in the racing scene. And to have a horse that's, you know, had that kind of a price tag to go on and have early success is really exciting for us to see. And especially for, for Jacob and for Mr. and Mrs. Lowe, and obviously for Waver Tree, the consigner, and Kieran Dunn and his team do a great job, as you know. So it's just awesome to see that success because, as you know, the price tag is no guarantee of success. So we're always glad when we see someone that's that expensive go on to do something really special. Since you've been involved, are there any particular horses that really stood out to you at a sale, maybe coming into the catalog that you've been able to kind of follow their journey on the racetrack? You know, as, it's funny you brought that up. I was I saw my first Bolt Diero short yearling yesterday, and I was really excited because mm -hmm. I was a big fan of his in the racetrack. And I'm a big fan of Spendthrift and their team in Kentucky. My family's been involved with them for a long time. So it was really exciting to kind of see, follow his career, watch him retire to stud. And now I can see his progeny in person. It was a really nice horse and it was really exciting. It was kind of a special moment. Yeah, you love getting a chance to see those ones that you loved on the racetrack and see if they carry on any of those traits. It's it's an inexact science, but it really is a fun one, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Just to kind of see it come full circle from breeding to sales to racing and then you kind of see it back come back to sales a few years later. It's a... Uh, you got to stick around the game a long time to kind of see that happen, but it's it's always exciting and it's just a special thing. Now, as we get ready for the OBS Winter Mix Sale, are there any particular hips as we circle back to what's coming up this Tuesday and Wednesday? Any particular hips that we should keep an eye on or any particular uh, new stallions of short yearlings that people maybe following along should look out for? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of national sires that were having their first progeny sale here with us. You know, there's some collecteds, more spirits, obviously the Boltioros, uh, the Sharp Aztecos are really good bodied horses. So it's exciting to kind of see how the market's going to respond to that because we're, we're excited to see those, those big name sires have progeny here with us. Mm -hmm. And obviously they're going to be very popular. Um, there's a couple race horses with some black type, uh, Jungle Fighters, grade three placed, uh, hip 257. So we're excited to see him get on the track and uh, hopefully sell here with us. So it's a, it's a fun time and a very diverse catalog and uh, really excited to have people down here. We're encouraged to have the good weather. It's supposed to be like 80 degrees for the sales. So we're hoping that we get some people from up north, kind of escape the winter time and come enjoy some Florida weather. 
being a bit of a snowbird working down at Gulfstream, I can understand that very well. It's definitely appealing. Uh, wishing you all the best weather. Wes, thanks so much. Good luck with the 2021 sales season. Hope to see you at OBS sometime soon. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks again, Acacia. Really appreciate it. So excited about this next guest coming up, Natalie Voss, editor-in-chief from the Pollock Report, a historic year for her winning two Media Eclipse Awards, the first person to do that in writing in the same category since Bill Knack in 1991. She was also a 2016 Eclipse Award with the article Something's Wrong With My Brain, which covered concussions in jockeys. This year, both of her winning articles covered the topic of thoroughbred aftercare, which is a huge piece of my life. And so I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to her today. Natalie, thank you for coming on In the Ring today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. And as I had kind of said in the intro, a a big year for you. First of all, congratulations on your two Eclipse Awards. Thank you. It's It's been a huge honor, and it's really nice for something good to come out of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that, right? It's been a little bit of a tough one. Now, both of your pieces that were acknowledged this year uh, covered aftercare. One was the story of three women and a OTTB named Inked in an incredible story that had me in tears. Um, The other one was a three-part series on aftercare. Let's talk a little bit about an angel on his shoulder, which covered Inked. What was it like putting this story together? Because it really was amazing how all the pieces really came, came together for a happy ending, which was also nice to see come out of 2020. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I it was um, you know a, a great series of a, a, an improbable series of events that happened to bring this horse back to his people. So, as I was, um, I initially talked to Kirsten Fada, who was the exercise rider who broke him and rode him on the racetrack when he was a two year old before he was claimed away from her barn. Um, she's the person that Inks reunited with at the, the end of the story and. She was the first one that I talked to as I was researching, and I just sort of got the sense throughout the interview, like as she was kind of unfolding the pieces, uh, you know, my job was really just to sort of tell the story without getting in the way, because just the way that things happen naturally was incredible. So uh, as far as I was concerned, that was that was more about what the three of them did together for this horse than than anything I did in getting the story across. It was the breeder, Susan M. Young, who had followed him throughout his career as well. And um, then also a a girl who ran a horse transport company who had remembered him. I mean, kind of amazing, I think, just kind of highlighting how these horses really do leave impressions on you wherever they go. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there was something for me, there was something really relatable um, for really all three of them. Um, about having you know, this one horse. Uh, in the case of the breeder, it was, you know, because she had bred him. But for Kirsten and for Hannah, you know, they work with horses every day. But I think that whatever your capacity is working with horses, there's one or two that stick out to you. And it's not even necessarily the most accomplished ones that you worked with. Um, you know, Inked was running at the kind of lower end of the claiming scale for most of his career. But just something about them makes it hard to let them go. And, and when you have to let them go because they don't belong to you, um, it's it's kind of tough to to wonder about them. So it was really great, really heartening to to see people come together for this horse and to see him end up where everyone agrees he was always meant to be. Mm-hmm. 
How did you come across this story and what made you want to write about it? Well, so Kirsten had actually sent us an email um, soon after she reunited with Inked. Um, she was boarding her horse at um, Moserwood Farm, which has several horses from um, Second Stride, their bird adoption program. They, they uh, you know, give some stalls to, to that program. And she didn't know that Inked was in the program. She didn't know where Inked was. She just was out riding her horse one day and was told, oh, there's these new thoroughbreds. You should go look at them. And then one of them was, was this horse. Um, so she had emailed us shortly after she had reunited with him in the barn, but she had also posted on Facebook about it. And it was from her Facebook post that she got connected with his breeder and that she got connected with Hannah Meyer, who had worked with him when he was on the West Coast and who had transported him part of the way back here to Kentucky. So um, really, the story was still kind of unfolding as I was talking to her. her. Her post went viral, and that enabled her to reach these other people, which enabled me to reach these other people and realize that it was a bigger story beyond just her experience with him. So that was pretty cool. It was amazing to see how many people he had kind of touched along the way. And, and then just that reunion, um, again, at the end was special. And I bring that up because uh, I love that both of your stories that were honored this year were part um, were part of kind of an aftercare conversation that has become a bigger one lately, obviously still a long way to go. And that's something you covered in your three-part series and what the industry is doing with aftercare. Why do you think it's important to tell these aftercare stories? Well, I think, you know, on the one hand, the certainly the, the goal, particularly of the three-part series was to look at what we're doing well and also look at where we still need to improve. I think it's important to tell the stories of what's not perfect yet so that we know what we still need to work on as an industry. Um, and it's important to tell the success stories you know, for the same reason to show where, to show where we are successful. Um, but I, I think that it's an important topic, even though we have this aftercare infrastructure in place because the, you know, the nature of our sport now, as we've seen with the breakdown issue, is that the world is watching us. And we have what a lot of people call a social license to operate, which means, you know, the broader world has to kind of tolerate our sport doing what it does. And part of that for the broader world is how do you take care of your horses, not just when they're on the track, but when they're off the track. So it's important that we're telling those stories of success, but it's also important that we're telling ourselves stories about where things are not working so that we can improve them before the broader world points to them and says, hey, look at that. Why are you allowed to do that? I could not agree more. As your first part of the three-part series was a decade in, um, what are we, how are we doing in aftercare? And it kind of looks first and foremost on the things that we're doing well. And a decade in, Looking back 10 years ago, as many people may know, I'm, I'm the founder and president of a thoroughbred aftercare organization called Racing for Home. And just a, about a year and a half ago, we were accredited by the Thoroughbred Aftercare Alliance. But 10 years ago, when we started, we had to kind of convince barns to be willing to take a thoroughbred off the track. Mm -hmm. There were so many kind of existing stereotypes already. And that was for a filly or a mare. It wasn't even a cult or, or even a gelding that nobody really wanted to have anything to do with thoroughbred aftercare. It was still very much taboo. And we really have come a long way in those 10 years. And I think that's that was really highlighted beautifully in that first part because a lot can happen in 10 years. Um, clearly, again, still a long way to go, but 
from where we have been to where we're going, it seems we are moving in the right direction. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, I don't know that aftercare was in the vocab, like the word aftercare was in the vocabulary of a lot of people, probably most people in the business 10 years ago. Um, we didn't have the TAA running at the scale that it's running now. We didn't have RRP doing what they do at, at this sort of volume. And and yeah, as you said, like the, the marketing aspect of the off-track thoroughbred has by itself been so powerful. There, There's people who are looking for horses off the track now when they want their next riding horse. And I don't think that was true 10 years ago at all. So it's it's amazing, really, how much we have gotten done in just a decade. How much do you think the aftercare conversation, you touched on this a little bit just a few moments ago, but how much do you think that aftercare conversation influences the standing of the world of horse racing, I guess we could say, because the breakdown issues have been a, a huge conversation, track safety. Um, we've seen stories of horses ending up in kill pens in the slaughterhouse. How much do you think it really impacts the industry of racing as a whole? I think what I've learned, you know, primarily from covering the, the slaughter pipeline is that the average person, whether they're a horse person in some other capacity or whether they're not a horse person at all, <clears throat> they don't really differentiate between this horse hasn't been on the racetrack in 10 years and this horse just came off the racetrack yesterday. They don't really differentiate between this is a racehorse who was struggling in $2,000 claimers and probably was, you know, operating in the red for his owner and his trainer. And this horse is, you know, making gobs of money. They don't understand the difference. They hear racehorse and they think it's still a racehorse. It was just a racehorse. It made all this money, whether or not it actually did. So they're going to put that responsibility on us. Whether or not that's fair, whether or not that's true, that's how they look at it. So I, I think that we can't underestimate how important the impact is of, of how these horses are cared for after they leave. And, and you have to be reasonable. I mean, a horse that's been retired for 15 years and has gone through you know, six different owners who have nothing to do with racing, you know, how much should that really be racing's problem? It's kind of a difficult question. But we just have to always keep in mind that's not what the public is seeing, regardless of whether that's the truth. They see racehorse, they think racing. And, and that's something that we shouldn't forget. You brought up the topic of responsibility, and it really is a tricky question because if a horse has been claimed away, does it still land on the breeder who had that horse maybe 15, 18 years ago? Things like that. A previous owner has been sold to different show barns between now and then, where do you think the responsibility really does lie? And what do you think could potentially be some solutions that we could kind of find in the middle to make sure that at least there is some sort of sense of responsibility? Well, I think that the way that the TAA has been doing things so far where they try to um, provide an, a, a donation or, or an aftercare sort of fee opportunity at various points throughout the horse's life is the right way to go. Um, I think that anyone who, who sort of relies upon the horse for their livelihood or for their business has some responsibility towards creating the opportunity for that horse to find a good home after it leaves the track. Um, I think that it's kind of difficult to say any one entity in the horse's life bears all the responsibility Personally, I tend to look a little bit harder at the breeders because they were, after all, the genesis of the horse. They looked at the pedigrees. They decided this horse should exist. 
that's the reason the horse exists. But I don't think you can put it all on them either. I think that, you know, the when it comes to the financial responsibility, it makes sense to have it distributed across different people in the horse's life. Um, but I think even without the, the financial issue, which is a big one, you know, there's not enough money for the infrastructure that we have. Um, but I think even if, if you sort of leave that part out of the picture, there's also kind of elements of responsibility that are not, you know, donation based that everybody in the horse's life has. I mean, the, um, you know, the owner has the ability to choose when to retire that horse or the trainer has the ability to choose when to retire that horse. And, you know, I've heard a lot more conversation in the last couple of years about one last race syndrome, the, the idea of, oh, we're just going to run him one more time. Well, he did okay, so we're going to just run him one more time. And, you know, I can understand how it must be easy to get caught in that loop. But, you know, you've got to leave something for the next person. If the horse isn't going to retire to be a breeding animal and you run him until he's got a couple of big bows in his front legs, you know, there's not going to be a lot of people who want that horse after the track. So, you know, you have to think about that. And and that is a financial consideration to an extent, but it's not the same thing as asking for a donation. You can use your sphere of influence to try to set that horse up to be better employable after he leaves the track. Uh, it's it's easy it's easier I should say to find a, an adoptable home for the flashy, uh, pretty, very sound sixteen hand horse right off the racetrack than it is for the smaller one who maybe didn't win any big races and has those injuries. And um, my mom and I have a few of those uh, for sure. So it, it is certainly a challenge. But I wanted to ask you on the other side of the coin too, and I know this was something that you also covered. Yes, there are a lot of issues. But there are also a lot of great stories of industry stakeholders and individuals who really have stepped up to the plate, especially, I think, over the last 10 years. There are many who've been doing it all along, but there really are such great examples of people in the industry who do care for their horses and who do seek out proper aftercare opportunities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I'm actually sort of a a beneficiary of of one of those programs. I uh, recently... Uh, adopted a, a off-track thoroughbred, my first off-track thoroughbred. Um, Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, and he came from Dolphin's Lifetime Care Program. They have an in-house person who um, helps source where those horses need to go. They work with some nonprofits. They work with some for-profit private trainers who train off-track thoroughbreds and sell them you know, in the for-profit market. And they're very, very careful about where their horses go. And, you know, that's all in-house. They sit around in a field until they have some place to go. If they come off the track with an injury and they need some time, they get the time before they look for some place for that horse to be. And then when they give you the horse or, or let you adopt the horse or whatever, they, they send along the medical records with the horse if that's what you request. And so the next person knows exactly what they're getting, knows everything the horse has had done. It's a fantastic system, and I think they've quietly been doing that for many years now. And I really wouldn't have known about it except that my trainer works with them, my my eventing coach works with them. So they're sort of they they do promote themselves a little bit, but they've just sort of been quietly doing this for some time because it's the right thing to do, and I think that's great. Yeah, that is wonderful, and congratulations! I didn't know that you had your first <laughs> OTTB. So I'm very excited for Thank you. you. It's a it's a very rewarding journey, though. It's, it definitely has its ups and downs, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I'm only a couple months in, so we're still uh, we're still in the honeymoon phase, where like everything he does is adorable, <laughs> and he hasn't like really broken himself or done anything <laughs> to to be offensive. So mostly, it's just like, oh, you know, he's just so cute. Look, he sneezes. Isn't it the cutest thing? 
So <laughs> it's it's still it's still lovely. I'm sure at some point it'll prove very challenging, but for right now he's very easy. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Um and I wanted to to ask a little bit about the retraining process then too, because I think that that's um, something you're going through and can be a, a great um, explanation of, because for many people I've found on not just people who are in the industry, but people who are outside of it and maybe interested in getting a thoroughbred, they A, don't really know where to start when finding the right horse, whether it's off the track or through a TAA organization. And then they don't really know what to do once they have the horse, because those horses that are coming off the racetrack, many of them, they only know how to run left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm still in the very earliest stages with him. Um, He came off with some really minor ligament desmitis. So I haven't actually started the under saddle portion to work with him yet, but I've been doing groundwork with him and I've watched my trainer restart a number of horses, you know, just through the years as I've boarded my other horse with her. Um, so it's it's interesting. I really do recommend working with a professional trainer, even if you're going to do most of the riding yourself, just to sort of make sure those first experiences are really good ones for you and for the horse. Um, and it's kind of interesting figuring out, even with the groundwork, I'm figuring out kind of where my misconceptions are about what he will and won't know how to do coming off the track. Like, you know, he won't have stood in cross ties probably before. I mean, some of them will, some of them won't. So that was a little bit, that took a couple of days of like, why is there pressure on both sides of my head? This is strange. But then, you know, there's other things like, you know, vehicles kind of going back and forth while we're out grazing, just sort of general disruption from dogs running around, people sort of making noise. I'm thinking, oh, you know, the, the possibly nervous thoroughbred better keep an eye on that dog. And I'm thinking, well, you know, he's seen dogs, he's seen chickens, he's been in a busy barn before. There are certain things that are not going to be strange to him that I would expect to be a little bit upsetting as far as like the energy and the chaos level around him. And then there's other basic things that you take for granted with a riding horse that he just wouldn't have had any reason to come across at the track. So it's been interesting kind of figuring out what some of those things are and there's a lot that they do know that they probably, you know, shouldn't get credit for already knowing. But there's other <laughs> things that, like, they're just never going to have been asked to do before. Mm-hmm. And some of them go so easily right away into whatever their next career is. And some of them take a little bit longer time, too. But one of the things I love most about thoroughbreds is that they they really are so willing to please. You hear that about them on the racetrack. And I think it's one of the things that makes them so easy to transition into new careers because they have that mentality, that attitude, that drive that carries through on the racetrack. And you see them, sometimes they turn lazy when they get off the track in their new careers, whether it's jumping, whatever it is. But you see that heart come through in that new new job that they have too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I've found with him so far. You know, I've Because I, I'm not riding him right now, I've been trying to introduce him to a lot of things on the ground, like poles, tires, tarps, you know, things that he might encounter in his life whenever we start riding him. Um, and something might make him a little nervous. He hasn't really gone to pieces over anything yet, but he will kind of look at it. He'll get a little bit tense and then he'll look at me and say, what do you want me to do? And if I pet him and I sort of like let him take a breath and then I ask him to walk forward towards the object, then he'll do it because I asked him to do it. Um, and usually he finds out, oh, you know, it's not going to eat me. And then he kind of, his anxiety is gone pretty quickly, uh, which is another misconception. Here I'm like walking him up to a tarp thinking, okay, hold on tight because, you know, he's, he's a thoroughbred. He might get really scared. And 
he just wants to eat grass mostly. <laughs> so that's been kind of an interesting experience. But yeah, he's done, even though we haven't started the undersaddle portion yet, I mean, he's done a lot of things just because I've asked him to do it. And that's really great. I'm really excited for you. I wish you all the luck uh, in the world with your with your new baby, your new project. That's wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about your writing in general, Natalie, because we've really become accustomed to seeing you in the Pollock Report with those hard-hitting stories. I think you look just at a, a good example here in your Eclipse Award honored features, both with the two and aftercare and your one back in 2016 with the concussions and jockeys. What is it that makes a good story for you and makes you feel like you want to write about it and tell that story? Um, I think I've always been drawn to investigative reporting uh, for as long as I've been in this role, because it seems to me like that is the type of journalism that has the biggest potential to make a difference. And, you know, but that's sort of been one of my big takeaways at Pollock Report is like you, you find the story, you tell the story as objectively and fairly as you can, but ultimately you're telling the story because you're hoping that telling it is going to make something change for the better. And unfortunately, that often means telling rather complicated or, or rather sort of tough to take kinds of stories. But, you know, we believe as a publication, and I believe that that's how you grow is by sort of shining the light on those difficult problems. So so anything that I think sort of shows an opportunity for where we can improve something for the welfare of horses or for people, I think is worth examining, but it is quite a process. Have there been any particular stories or maybe one in particular that looking back on you are so proud of and or feel like really made a significant impact? Oh gosh, that one's sort of tough. Um, <laughs> I, I think that. You know, very early on when I started doing this type of work for the Pollock Report, I did sort of a series. Uh, it, w- it wasn't framed as a series, but there just sort of kept continually being a, a reason to do another story on drug testing and also on, um, it's not very glamorous, but on sort of supplements and FDA approval. Um, and I and those have aged really well, kind of looking at when you're looking at a compounding pharmacy, what are some red flags when you're looking at a supplement company that is producing a product that it says is going to enhance your horse's performance. Is that legal? What does that mean? Where does that come from? Those have kind of held up to the test of time, particularly in light of the federal indictments. Mm-hmm. So those were a lot of work at the time, and, and they continue to be relevant, unfortunately, in, in the scheme of regulation and, and the scheme of you know anti-doping programs. So it's it's not a particularly sexy topic, but it's really, really important, and it's one that I think a lot of people don't understand all that well. And I think those ones that aren't exactly the most glamorous topics really are the ones sometimes that need to be told the most. And I still think even looking back over that 10 year span, as we started the conversation with aftercare, that maybe sometimes it, if you dig a little bit deeper, it's not the most glamorous topic for sure. And I am hopeful for the future that we have as an industry. And I love what you wrapped up with in the third part of your three-part aftercare series about it not being an afterthought moving forward. How much do you think that that three-part series and it being honored at the Eclipse Awards, how influential do you think aftercare will be moving forward? I mean, I, I think that the fact that aftercare was at the center of both awards this year 
really demonstrates how compelling uh, stories that are both complicated and critical, as well as, you know, really heartwarming stories, how compelling those are for people in our industry, even though they're not on the racetrack or, or in the breeding barn. Um, and I think that that sort of emotion and that heart and that connection to those types of stories, I think is going to be what keeps the issue generally alive kind of going forward into the next 10 years. And, and I'm also really hopeful and optimistic, I think, generally about where I hope that we'll go in the next 10 years, given what we've done in the last 10. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I think that actually the the sort of challenges that I highlighted in that piece for a lot of the people who were sort of already in the aftercare world, like working in the nonprofit sector, particularly, those are not new. It, this is not new information to them that those challenges exist. Mm -hmm. What I'm hoping is that maybe that will be new information to people who are outside the nonprofit sphere and will inspire them to kind of keep going at this problem as, as we march forward. It's a fantastic legacy and, and a great, a great, great job by you. And again, a huge congratulations on the awards this year, but even more so congratulations on, on all of the courage that you've really shown in telling these stories. You're somebody that I really admire and I'm really, really happy to have you on today and get a chance to talk candidly about this topic and everything else. And I really appreciate your time, Natalie, and looking forward to reading the next big story. Well, thank you so, so much, Akisha. I really appreciate it. The Eclipse Awards coming up on January 28th, a virtual ceremony this year, and it's hard to believe it was just a year ago that we were all together. Uh, I'm proud to be one of the hosts uh, again this year, though, of course, socially distanced, but big congratulations to Natalie Voss on her well-deserved recognition at the Eclipse Awards and, of course, to all of the finalists. Definitely check out Natalie's award-winning articles on the Pollock Report if you haven't already. A big thank you to Natalie, Sabrina Moore, and Wes Peterson for coming on today. Also, don't forget to follow the OBS Winter Mix Sale, which kicks off on Tuesday, January 26th. As always, let me know if you have any ideas or stories that you think are interesting for me to cover on here. And thanks, as always, for listening to In the Ring with Acacia Courtney. See you next time.